0: Judy Klisner is a senior lecturer in Bible at the Pardesian Institute of Jewish Studies, and she teaches Bible to JTS rabbinical students in Israel. In her teaching and in her writing, Judy weaves together traditional exegesis, modern scholarship, and her own original interpretations that are informed by close readings of the text. She lectures internationally at synagogues, campuses, rabbinical training programs, and adult education programs that span the denominational spectrum. is a regular visiting lecturer at the London School of Jewish Studies, and is the author of Subversive Sequels in the Bible How Biblical Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other. It's a JPS uh, paperback that can be purchased on Amazon. So that's where I I purchased a few. Um, That book received the 2009 National Jewish Book Award. It is superb, phenomenal. And um, please join me in welcoming one of the best uh, text teachers I've ever spent time with, Judy Klitzner. Thank you. Thank you, Ari, and hearty mazel tov to you. I'm very impressed that you showed up today. Um, what a wonderfully vibrant learning community you have here. At CSP, on a Friday. Somebody's cooking, right? You all left your, your cholent on a slow burn. You cater. You cater. All right, okay. Okay. Um, how's this? Can you hear me? He told me to get like super close to the mic, but I'm afraid I'm getting a little too intimate with it. No, we're good. Perfect. OK. Well, speaking of vibrant, I, I created my own segue with that word because I want to talk today and talk, converse with you about what I like to call the vibrant conversation that is taking place all the time within the Bible. Stories are in dialogue with one another. All the time it's happening there and it's up to us to notice this to uncover it and to f- to figure out what's the conversation all about um, and I throw the question to you what would be our tip-off as good readers of the text as to what stories are in conversation with one another how do we know sorry it starts with well lots of come yes but how do we know that thi- how do we know that this story and that story are doing this yeah Sometimes they use the same words? Yes, two stories. will we'll share vocabulary, and getting to Vayomer, I would say most stories have Vayomer. Sometimes my students, in their effort to please me, will say, look, Judy, look, these two stories belong together. This one has Vayomer, and that one has Vayomer. Now, that's great, but the problem is that Vayomer is everywhere, he said. Um, so what we're looking for is not just any words that are shared, but, but what? Unusual words or unusually insistent words and if we find that this text has a certain vocabulary and that text borrows that vocabulary, we have to pause and say, well, why? What are these two stories trying to say to each other? In addition to language, what else might these stories share? Themes, themes, plot lines. And if we have themes and language in common, we need to draw those stories together and see what is the net gain by reading those stories in light of one another beyond that which we would have found had we read them individually. Okay, now I'm so thrilled and thralled by this conversation that I spend my time thinking about it, learning about it, teaching about it, and as Ari said, writing about it. Um, so much so that I wrote this book called Subversive Sequels in the Bible, how biblical stories mine and undermine each other. And Really what the book is is pairing stories and looking at how are these stories mining each other, how are they interpreting, expanding upon one another, And then what I get to is what I I consider to be even more intriguing is that stories sometimes will borrow each other's language and themes not just to reinforce each other, but sometimes one story will, in a very subversive way, start to challenge the other one. I'm going to use your language and then I'm going to invert your message. Okay, that's where I want to go with this. By the way, just as an aside, I was so proud of this title. I worked on it. I worked on the book for a long time. I worked on the title for a long time. And I came out and said to my family, I got it. Finally have the title. And I told it to them. And my then 17-year-old son looked at me with a pained expression on his face. And he said, Ima, nobody is going to buy or read a book with that name. You have to call it Monkeys in Space. This was his... This was, his, this was his advice to me, and he meant it from the bottom of his heart. Um, one will never know how this book would have fared had I tried that, but we're going to have to stick with what we've got. Okay, today, our, to- our, our topic is women, uh, and I understand that it was recently International Women's Day. Are you all aware of this? So maybe that's why this wasn't a coincidence that you chose this topic. Um, and this is a topic that is very close to my heart because um, I am a, woman who reads the Bible a lot, Um, and when I was educated early on, my teachers were very fond of pointing out the the women in the Bible and saying, here, let's draw a character sketch of them. Look, they are all this way, and because we can see in these stories that they are this way, therefore you, good Jewish woman, should also be that way. What would that way be? What? Modest? What else? What else? In the kitchen, what was the first part? Pregnant. Pregnant in the kitchen? Okay. In other words, um, the the stories of the matriarchs, and here, if we talk for a moment about specifically in the book of Genesis, which is where we're going to start our conversation. The stories are very, uh, I I, I would expand on the word kitchen, because they didn't have so many kitchens per se back then, but they did have tents. They had tents. They're very tent centered, they are very child centered, and in fact, so much so that we have uh, women in the Bible expressing existential um, doubts uh, as to their purpose in life, right? By saying, if I, for instance, the most extreme would be Rachel, who says um, to her husband, Give me children, and if not, I will die or I am dead, right? questions her, her, her very purpose to such an extent that if she can't have a child, there is no further purpose to her life. We're going to find those themes over and over again in the book of Genesis, um, and we're going to uh, take a closer look at these themes in addition to just make things a little bit even more difficult. What, is, what, what are we going to find? These women, if their sole purpose is motherhood, what's the problem? All four matriarchs. All four, at some point, are going to be infertile. So then the question is, well, what happens if, so, if their de- definition is, is motherhood, but they can't have children? And then, to make matters even worse, what is, in the book of Genesis, what is the antidote to infertility? Handmaid. What? Handmaid. Handmaid yes. So surrogacy is one, is one way to go. Uh, but who is, who is responsible for opening and closing wombs in this book? God and who has access to God? The men. Okay, so then the problem is there's a bit of a chain here where the woman is the one who is looking for um, a solution. She is dependent on her husband in order who is the conduit to God. And in the stories that we read, that husband is either is or is not pleading on her behalf to God. Okay, so things are looking pretty dire right now, right? What I would like to suggest is the following. And it's not a it's not a big big revelation, but here it is. The story is more complex than that, um, and 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 more complex complex than many of the uh, teachers of these stories would have us think. It is much more complex than saying here is a story about a biblical woman, and therefore we can extrapolate from this as to what the role of all women are for all time. In fact, what I and here's where we're getting to the subversive sequels. What I am I'm trying to suggest with this, and as with many other notions in the Bible, is that the story is ongoing. Yes, we have those stories in Genesis, but we have other stories later in the Bible that are in that vibrant dialogue with our stories in Genesis. The stories, and where we're going to, we're going to we're going to rest today. What we're going to find is the book of Judges is going to pick up much of the language from the book of Genesis, many of the themes from those stories of those infertile and helpless matriarchs, and is going to throw everything up in the air and turn it upside down. OK, you ready? Let's do it. Source number one. All right, and, and it again, comes with a warning that things are going to, get, going to get bad before they get better. Does everyone have a source? Down? Source sheets. No. Uh, here, they're right here. you don't have one, headed, Okay, uh, um, until what time do I have? I want to know what speed to set myself on. Like 115. 115. 115, okay then. Fast speed, and I will need uh, any doctors in the room in case I need CPR. <laughs> Who do we got? Okay, good. Um, <clears throat> source number one. When we first meet Abraham in source number one, the Lord says to Abraham, and this is a very familiar verse, but I'm going to read it with a with a slightly new uh, emphasis. Source one: Va'yomer Adonai el Avram lech lecha el ha'aretz asher What are you hearing? Cha 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 cha. Know that yes, in Israel, that's how people laugh. I, right? Cha cha cha. But. Um, What is ha in Hebrew? You, masculine, singular. God is speaking, and here I just want to shift our, our, our lens on this to notice that when God speaks to Abraham, God is speaking in the singular to Abraham. You get going from your land to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, etc. Where is Sarah? We know she's with him on this journey, yet God's promises and God's order come directly to Abraham in the singular. Notice just under that, in Genesis 15, when Abraham begins to speak, Abraham speaks back and he realizes, wait a minute, God is promising me all this, all this progeny and all this wonderful stuff, but, but my wife can't have children. And so he's worried. And so he says to God, ma titen li" What will you give to me? I am childless. And God says, don't worry. None but your very own issue shall be your heir. The conversation in both directions is in the singular. God God is speaking to Abraham in the singular. Abraham is speaking back in the singular, I. You would think that he could do this whole thing on his own. Where is the wife in this story? And in fact, she has not... Spoken up until this point. We haven't heard a single word from her what we know from her is that she's in trouble Because she is infertile and if the promises are masculine centered and progeny centered Where does that leave her and so we finally hear from her in Genesis? 16 and here's where the surrogacy piece comes in Sarah no, what's this woman's name? Again? Sarah. Yes, okay Genesis sixteen, the Sarai, eshet Avram, lo yaldalo. Okay, she did Sarai. She's now re, re, remember she's got two names before her name is Sarah. It's Sarai. She has not given birth for, to him for him, and she has this shivcha mitzrit, an Egyptian maid whose name is Hagar. Vatomer Sarai el Avram, hinei na Hashem it, Behold, she says to her husband. God has stopped me from having a child. Bona el I like this translation. Consort with my maid. Ulay ibane mimena. Okay, here I get to do this rock star thing. Okay. Ulay ibane mimena. And this word I find to be a very pardon the term pregnant term. Ibane. What's the root of this word? What does it mean? Ibane. I will be built. Okay. First of all, what other word is hiding in this word? Ben, right? And there's probably an an intended double entendre. Perhaps I will be stunned right through. But built is a very, very resonant word here. We have seen this verb once before already in the book of Genesis Uh, in relation to a biblical woman. What was it? When was it? it must be Eve. Yes, who said that? Say it proudly. With Eve. What happens with Eve? She gets built. Yes. <laughs> God constructs her, takes the side of a man, and builds the woman. Here, how significant is this that we have a woman who says if I can't have a child, that construction is going to be undone. Right? I, she's questioning her, her very sustainability. Uh, without, without this uh, successful uh, childbirth effort. She's questioning her very right to be, I believe, in this story in a very subtle way. So we've got a conversation that's going on between God and Abraham and Sarah who feels that her almost that her life, her purpose is at risk and she tries surrogacy, which we all know is going to fail. Finally, we get to Genesis 17, and uh, just as things are seem, seeming, seeming very hopeless, and God steps into the picture, and here I would argue that God is trying to help. Uh, the question is, is Abraham listening? If you look in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, and this is the, this is the chapter where God um, delivers a brit milah, Ari, listen up, this is where it all began. Uh, and God says at this moment of bringing Abraham into the covenant, right, there's going to be a covenant on, on uh, in Abraham's flesh, a brit milah. He, God says very significantly, Sarah is in this covenant, too. And this is the first time that God is speaking directly to Abraham about his wife. She is an equal partner in this enterprise. Both of you are part of my covenant. And he says, er Elohim el Avraham, o I will bless her. This is Genesis seventeen. I am giving a son through her to you. What's Abraham's response to this? alpanav He falls on his face and laughs. And then, to make it worse, he says the following: Lu Yishmael if only Ishmael would live before you. What does he mean by that? Why does he say this? He, what, why, is, why, is that a, why is that an appropriate response? Why is that even relevant to what God says? God says, Sarah's going to be the mother of this promised child. And Abraham says, if only Ishmael would live before you. Remember, Hagar gives birth, the surrogate gives birth to a child whose name is Ishmael. He's already there. And Abraham says, if only Ishmael would live before you. What does he mean? Okay, he wants God to recognize him. Yeah? Ishmael is the Bahor. He's the firstborn, so he should be the uh, one who inherits the promise. Yeah, in response to that which God is promising him, another child. And keep in mind that Abraham's almost 100 years old. Basically, what he's saying is, God, really, are you kidding me? It's okay. You don't have to make me these outlandish promises. I'm okay. I have a child. Let Ishmael live, and we'll call it a day. And God then has to insist and explain and say, no, listen to me, Avraham. No, here's what I'm telling you. Sarah, your wife, right? Emphasis on your wife. She is the one who's going to be the mother of this great nation. Okay. I would argue that God is starting to deliver a new message. And that message is a message of inclusion of Sarah. The question, though, is, is Abraham ready to hear it? I would argue that at this stage he is not. And if we look in Genesis 18, in the next source, um, we're going to see something that is very much in line with all the stereotypes that we have about, about the book of Genesis and, and the roles of the men and the women in this book. Hashem okay. God appeared to, to whom? Abraham. Abraham. Okay, and this word vayera is a very patriarchal term. The Lord appears to the men in this book. He is sitting petach ohol. He's at the gate. He's at the entry to the tent. Why is he at the entrance to the tent? Sorry. He just had a
1: press. Okay.
0: Yes, you can say that, but but more simply. Because he wanted to greet whatever. Yes. Abraham is the man, and so he is. At the, he is at the He's at the front door, right? He's the gate to the the, the 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 face to the outside world. If anybody comes, he's going to be the one to greet them, and that's in fact what's going to happen. He's the he's the patriarch in the house. Where's Sarah? In the kitchen. She's in the kitchen. That's yes, she is. Okay. He looks up and he sees three men coming, and yes, we know these are no ordinary men. Okay. Anyway, what does Abraham do? Here, still in the source, Genesis 18. Notice here, I've underlined the words ratz maher. What do those words mean? Rats roots. Roots means go quickly, run, and maher means quickly. These words appear numerous times in this text. Abraham responds with alacrity, dealing with every need of a stranger. That's his job. He's the man of the house. He tells Sarah to hurry up. She's in the kitchen. He says, "Make some cakes. Need woman. Need get moving, right?" And then the men then say to Abraham, three very important words. They say, "Aye, Sarah, isteha." Who would like to venture a translation of these words? Where is Sarah, your wife? Okay, now let me ask you this. Here's a quick quiz. If you are in Jerusalem, let's say, and you want to find the nearest grocery store, you tap a person just at random on the street, would you say, Would you? If you were going to, you should not. Don't do that. What would you say? April. Okay, efo. and efo, by the way, is also a biblical word for where. Uh, when you want to find the location of something, you say eifel. Aye doesn't mean the same thing as epho, and, and I will say I had the privilege of uh, the great zichut of learning this distinction from my teacher, Nechama um, Leibowitz of, of blessed memory. Aye um, means something else. Where's the first time we see the word ayeh in the Bible? Ayeka, the Lord says to Adam when Adam and Eve had eaten from the fruit. Where are you? What does God mean when God says, where are you? Where are you spiritually? spiritually? What has become of you? What have you done? Let's talk. Right? It's it's much more of of an existential question, rhetorical question, than a question, please tell me where you are. Now keep in mind that when God asks that question to Adam, Adam responds as (laughs) if it were meant literally, where are you? And he says, oh, I'm over here in the bush. Can't you find me? Right? We call that, that, what's the technical term for that? Chutzpah, right? <laughs> okay, that's in the literature. Um, I would suggest here that when these people say to Abraham, not afo sarah ishtacha, but aye sarah ishtacha, what are they saying? It's not, they're not asking where she is. They know where she is. What are they doing here? Why, why are they using an aye word? Why Exactly. This is rhetorical as well. There is a very, very subtle reprimand here. We, you're, we're you, we talking about her. She's the mother of this miraculous child that's going to be born a year from now. We're here to tell you about it. God has already promised it to you. She's not here as part of this conversation. Where is she? But Abraham, much like Adam in the garden, chooses to interpret the question literally. Where is she? He says, Oh, she's in the tent. That's where she lives. Right? He seems to be oblivious to the to the to the to the point that these messengers are trying to deliver. Right? She should be here. What we find then, they give the message, Sarah is is straining to overhear this. She's she has she's reduced to eavesdropping. And then we're told at the end of this passage, um, the second to last line, the Avraham v'Sara ba'im ba'yamim, they're both old, chadal leSarah orach Who would like to translate that? chadal? Oops. Anybody? What? Chadal, what does chadal mean? To cease, to stop. And orach means a path. The path, okay, Sarah and Abraham are old, and then it tells us she had ceased having orach kanashim, the paths of women. What on earth do you think that means? She's she's post-menopausal. She's really, really old, okay? Um, The reason I wrote this down is because I want you to file this this, is a, this term is so rare, these, the combination of these two words, that, that it actually appears only twice in the entire Bible. Yes, we are going to find out what the other one is, and I will tell you already, it is going to be in a very, very subversive um, role that second time. It's going to take all everything that we're seeing here and flip it on its head, okay? But we, we have a long way to go before we get there. Sarah, I believe, by these words the text is telling us her paths have ceased, right? Her, 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 her um, roads toward redemption are, are, are blocked. She herself feels, and she says it here, after I'm withered, will I have enjoyment? She sees herself as basically uh, without hope for, for uh, self, Uh, uh, fulfillment for for finding her role in life now of course what we're going to find is that God is going to redeem her he's going to remember her but the story I would say is a sad story in that God is there doing that whereas Abraham it seems doesn't quite figure it out okay and if you want some better news I would say that he finally does figure it out but only after Sarah is dead and there in the story of Abraham buying a burial plot for her we find all the all of the emotion that's kind of missing in the, in the other stories, but that's a discussion for another time. What I, what I really want to do here is start to, to notice the chains in the story and how the story of Biblical Woman develops. And here I want to move ahead to Rebecca, whose story I believe is going to pick up many of the themes from the story of Sarah Um, and bring us some unexpected developments. First of all, when we first meet her, the servant of Abraham meets her out at the well and says, in very patriarchal terms, give me a little water. Okay, this is women give water in this book. I want to point this out because it's gonna happen again later. But now comes a surprise. She says to him, instead of just giving him a little water, she goes hurrying and scurrying, and notice here on your page, these two words, roots, maher, do you see it underlined there? Appear over and over and over. This story kind of surprises us by using the words that are used for Abraham, but to apply those words to 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 a matriarch. She is the person who's outside. She is the person who is running to take care of the needs of a a passing stranger. In addition to that, notice here when she is asked, she is the only one of the, the matriarchs to be asked what she would like to do, and she utters this one word when they say to her, would you like to go with this man? What does she say? I will go. What does that recall? Lech Lecha, right? Abraham, and Abraham, we could say, has an advantage in that God appeared to him and said, Lech Lecha. Here we have a woman who never heard from God. She is going to retrace Abraham's steps, in fact, from the same geographical location where he he started, in Haran, and go to Canaan, just as he did. She's going to go, but she's going to figure it out completely on her own. She is the most remarkable person. And in, if it, if it, if we, in case we missed it, the text, when she gets a blessing from her family, what do they say to her? They blessed Rebecca saying, where is this? At the bottom of page two, oh, sister, may you grow into thousands of myriads. May your offspring seize the gates of their foes. Those precise words, well, almost, are said to whom? Abraham. After the Akedah, if you look at the top of page three, God says to him, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens, and your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. What's going on here? Why do you think the text is using all of this Abraham language for Rebecca? Yeah. Rebecca, who's going to carry out the promise yeah. Okay, we're going to see that she in some sense is going to figure things out. She's going to carry out the promise. And if we, if we were stuck in a certain stereotype of the matriarch, what we're given here, and I would say that this is brief, it doesn't last, but we see that alternative potential is there. right? What we think is a hard and fast definition of the matriarch and the patriarch is actually open for discussion. Here is a woman who we would have expected to be in a tent, worrying about children, and in fact, she's out in the world, feeding camels, receiving guests, and getting God's spiritual, uh, having a spiritual relationship with God. What's up here? Okay, what's what's up here is that things are gonna change, and she's gonna go back to being the matriarch. And here I wanna ask you to look at, at the source on your page that says Genesis 24. And I would like to ask you, Can I do this? Can I ask people to do something? little chavutam, two minutes? Are you guys up for this? Yeah, come on, I'm talking too much. Genesis 24, (laughs) take a look at this, please. I have it here in Hebrew and English, whichever is comfortable for you. Take two minutes, and I want to ask you as you read it, what do you think has happened to our matriarch slash patriarchal figure, Rebecca, in this passage? Please go. Please make some noise. Please turn this room, this CSP, into a rock and bait midrash. When you are finished, eye contact will tell me that that is the case. Okay, I'm seeing eyeballs. (laughs) What has happened to Rebecca in this story? Please back up your opinion with a fact in this text. What did you find? Yes? Rebecca has become the active one here. She's the one who is gathering information. She's taking the initiative. She's finding about the other person. Uh, She's doing the manipulation and providing the structure, which will later on um, turn into the uh, getting together and, and the marriage. Okay. Uh, she's not emotional. Isaac is the emotional oh, okay. one. okay. He's the one who's being comforted. Are you seeing all that in here? Oh, yes. oh, because he takes her and he's comforted. Okay, yeah. okay, good. What else? Yeah. Well, and she does not take a submissive stance. Okay. That, that she it says she fell from the camel. Yeah. Why is she and doing that? Right. It, it's sort of well, you know, if she left off or if she, uh, <coughs> gorgeous. you know, she didn't. She's swooning. You know, to be uh, lifted off the camel. Oh, she's doing it by herself. Unless she's she's falling, in which case that's kind of kind of comical. But okay, yeah. I I think that she's taking a more active role. That she's changing her status from a girl to a bride. Okay. And um, so she's putting on her battle gear and saying, "I'm going for it." Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I actually She's seeing this guy out there meditating. Uh-huh. and is struck by some heartfelt impulse that you can argue from God, okay. that this is the guy, this is her trajectory this is the future okay yeah well, if, if we want to go from where you're coming from, <laughs> from I always know? want to go where <laughs> I'm coming from you're telling us that we just read a passage, is highly unusual she was almost treated as the commanding male by God, mm-hmm. given the promise, mm-hmm. primal. Mm-hmm. And here now, she meets, sees Isaac, told he is my master, at least by the servant. Mm-hmm. She now does a symbolic gesture to, in a sense, reduce herself by putting on a veil. Now, are you saying that because you think I think that, or because you think I that? probably wouldn't have uh, I'm trying to please you. You're doing, you're doing really well. You're doing really well. I hate being so predictable, though. Go ahead, yeah. And, and then being led to the tent of all things to live her future. Okay. Did anybody else see it that way or are you just trying to please me? Yeah, go ahead. So, the, so we were talking about it and we saw it totally saw it that way. Yeah. It's like why was she taken out of, why was she taken out of this role like almost like a male role for yeah. the journey to get to this point and now she's back in you know Yeah. A go ahead, please affirm. Yes. <laughs> she, uh, to you she becomes modest again okay. in a female role. To yes. Take it. Okay. Fact number one, she is covering herself with a veil. Why is she doing that? Modesty. Modesty. There was one other figure in the Bible, in the the book of Genesis, another woman who covers her face with a veil. Who is it? Tamar. Tamar, And she does it, the context there is hiding her identity. All right, now here's a woman who has a very proud, strong identity, and now she's doing this. Okay, come on, i got some arguments on my behalf here, right? Okay, I'm talking to you, sir. (laughs) Um, What else? I admire you. You admire me? Not only do I want to please you, (laughs) you're great. (laughs) Then we're all good. Yes? So we talked about this thing with the descendants who are going to seize the gates. She needs somebody to fulfill that with. She can't do that by herself. Okay. descendants. Yes, yes. She's going to have to have the descendants. Yes? I think she's covering herself to find out. He's never met her, so she's trying to find out whether it is Match for her because he wants, she wants to find out whether he love, loves her for her and not just because she's no, supposed no. to be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Ari. Yeah, what I think we discussed was that as soon as after she cut herself, all of a sudden the story focuses back on the man. Yes. So it's the all story. about him and his needs and nothing about her. It's so kind of moving the true. mantle back where we would expect it to be. Yeah. One more comment. Yes. So, in a way, she, it's a foreshadowing of how she takes charge with Jacob and Esau. Okay. Okay, good. Um, I want to say this. I want to say that um, I believe I'm right. <laughs> but um, I also want to say that, as with everything else I say, you are absolutely free to reject every one of my readings. These are, these are my interpretations, but that's what's so great about learning ta- Torah. Um, if you can back up your opinion with the text... That's legitimate, and that's why when we open up a ot gedolot, there's this much this much text and this much commentary, and most of the time they're not agreeing with, with each other. And that's what keeps this thing relevant and alive. So let's let's do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I what I see here is yes, I see the mantle being given to the person that where it is assumed that it rightly belongs. She has her moment, but now it's things become clear. Here is the actual patriarch. Why is she falling off her camel? So yes, maybe she's swooning. Maybe he's handsome. Maybe he is otherworldly, as some suggested. Right? This this notion that he's almost angelic, Um, or he's a broken um, post-traumatic stress. Maybe he's (laughs) been. He's almost been slaughtered on a mountain. Maybe. I look at this as she's losing her equilibrium, and it struck me once as I was reading this: of all things to fall off of, she's the camel lady. She's the one who is giving liquid to all those camels. She knows what to do. She takes charge with camels, and now she can't keep her balance on one. Yes? Have you ever ridden a camel for a long Never. time? Never. No. I mean, it's I hard. even riding a horse, after you've been on a horse for a while, right. you want to fall off the damn horse mm-hmm. and remove <laughs> your legs and yeah. get the feeling back so, between them. Yes, oh. so we fully understand her. Okay, we're going to run out of time. Let me take two more, and then I really got to go. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. from being up high, okay. she is yeah. going down to yes. this level. Okay. She is yes. going down. down. And we cannot ignore the fact that he takes her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. Right Here is now where you live in this Ohel. And this is the matriarchal space. It has been and it will continue to be. She hasn't been living there yet. But now Yitzchak is making it clear, this is where you go. Now, I would agree with all of you when well, you're finding sentiment here, and there is, and I think the story we have to notice, the story of Isaac and Rebecca is a story of sentiment where they're the only, uh, There's a, it says he loves her, um, the, this is the only monogamous couple among the, the matriarchs and the patriarchs, there's, he doesn't, right, he doesn't. When when, they, when she can't have a child, what does he do? He prays for her. He doesn't he doesn't go looking for another uh, for another wife. There there is there is real emotion in this story, uh, but I think that that is not necessarily at odds with the notion that now we have much more traditional roles that are put in place. And in fact, if you look just below this, when it comes time to pray, Isaac is the one who's doing the praying. Um, where by the way, what is Isaac's Space, where is he in the earlier story? In the, field. in the field. And the field is well what's the field? It's outside, right So in some sense he's like Abraham he's out with the world. but um, the, it also seems to be an internal place, right this Sadeh, we all know what is he really doing there? Mincha. Um right This notion that he, it's a place of introspection, right He's out la Su conversing or meditating in the field. There's a feeling that he's there's some some spiritual thing that's going on there. And he's the person who reaches God and prays. God then grants the two, not one, but two children. And now we've got two comments made by Rebecca that I think really solidify her place back in a much more traditional matriarchal place, where she says, when the two fetuses are fighting within her, Genesis where it says 25 and 27, she said, why am I? If this is the case, why do I exist? And then later she says, why am I alive? Getting back to Sarah's question about her statement, this notion about not being fully constructed without a successful child-rearing enterprise, and then, as we said earlier, the most extreme ex- um, expression of this is going to be made by the next matriarch, Rachel, just at the bottom of page 3, where she sees that she's not having a child, and she says to her husband these, these really difficult words. Wait, no, it's different on your page. Yeah, at the bottom of page 3. <laughs> Bring me children, for if not, I am dead. Right, this very extreme expression that without children, the very the very purpose of life is 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 in is in question. And here I, I want to just say that before we go, before we leave the book of Genesis and enter the topsy-turvy world of, of judges, I would say that all in all, the book of Genesis contains advances and retreats on the part of women. It provides a kind of traditional role, but it also gives us little glimmers of that something else is possible. But the resounding tropes are self-doubt, the feeling that only childbirth is going to redeem them. Um, they don't have the spiritual standing to reach God. The ohel oh is the place in which they live. And surprisingly, many of these observations were made in the 15th century. And I want to call your attention to the next source. Um, really, you would think that this is something that might have been written you know, today. Um, written by a commentator by the name of Isaac Arama in the 15th century. His pen pen name is the Akedat Yitzchak. And basically, he writes this, putting his words into the mouth of of Jacob. When Rachel says these words, bring me children, or if not, I will die, Jacob's response is to get angry at her. And everybody wants to know, why is he angry? And so Akedat Yitzchak says the following. He takes us back to the Garden of Eden, and he says the two names, Isha and Chava, indicate two purposes. The first teaches that woman woman was taken from man, emphasizing that like him, she was capable of understanding and advancing intellectually and morally. Okay, That's Isha. The second, right, woman is called two different things. The second alludes to the power of childbearing and rearing children, as is indicated by the name Chava, the mother of all the living. A woman deprived of the power of childbearing will be deprived of the secondary purpose and be left with the ability to do evil or good just like the man who is sterile. Jacob was therefore angry with Rachel when she said, give me children, or if not, I shall die. By exhibiting anger, he sought to reprimand her and make her understand this all-important principle. Her childlessness did not render her a dead person as far as their joint purpose in life was concerned, just the same as it would be had he been childless. Amazing, Wait, what is he saying? A woman is basically everything that a human being can be. Her secondary purpose, just like the secondary purpose of a man, is to have children. If you can't have children, you're still there as a complete human being. This should not be the sole definition of any human being. And that, he says, is why Jacob is angry at her, for saying, if I don't have a child, that's the end of it. As we move away from the book of Genesis and into the book of Judges, what we're going to see is that the, I would say that the the primary voice, the voice of the text that we're going to look at, are going to pick up this, this thought. They are going to see things not from the point of view of the characters in the book of Genesis, but from the point of view of this guy who wrote this in the 15th century, and I think something that's a little closer to the way that we might see things today. And so we get to source number three, and we start talking faster and faster and faster and faster. OK, Deborah. Um, in this passage, we are going to see that all our expectations are, foreign, are just out the window, right? We start with U Isha nevia. Deborah was a woman and a prophet. Who's the prophet in the book of Genesis? Abraham is a prophet. The men are prophets. Here we've got a woman prophet. She is defined as eshet lapidot, which means the wife of a guy named lapidot, or a woman of, what does lapidot mean? Anybody? Torches, torches. Just like eshet Chail doesn't mean a woman who's married to a guy named Chail. She is a woman of valor. This could mean she is a woman of torches. She is a luminescent figure. And I think supporting that is that her sidekick is a, na- a guy named Barak, which means lightning. Right? These are these two very uh, like, uh, very lit up figures. And if that's not enough, he shofta et Yisrael ba'etahi. She's a judge, she's a prophet, she's a, torch, or a woman of torches. And she sits outside under a tree. And all the people, when people wanted judgment, they knew where to find her. She's out there under that tree. And now, just to sum it up, God gives a message to her because she is the prophet. She goes to, the, to Barak, and she says to him, God says, we're going to win the war. You've got to go. And he says to her, I will go, but under one condition. What's the one condition? Go with me. And and if, I, if we had more time, we would talk about the use of the word elech here, where he says, instead of the, the elech of Rebecca, I will go, Barak says, lo elech, not going. And she says uh, elech. There are actually four women in the Bible who say elech, four really strong women. This is one of them. Rebecca's the other one. Who is the other one? Other two? Ruth. And um, Miriam says it as a question, ha elech, should I go? But that's a, that's a talk for another time. Okay, basically what Barak is saying to her is, I'll go, but only if you hold my hand. And she says, yes, I will do that, but you should know that you are going to have to suffer the scorn of society uh, because they're going to know that you were saved by a woman. Okay, so that the sexist kind of, uh, ideas are still there, but yet people are turning to women for help because they know that the women can help them. Um, Notice, almost as significant as what is is in this chapter, in this story, is what is not in this story. This is a story about a biblical woman that has absolutely no reference to childbirth, husband. Does she have a child? If she doesn't have a child, is it a problem? Does she want a child? Why isn't she praying for a child? Nothing. We don't even know if she can cook. We don't know if she can (laughs) cook. Does she even have a kitchen? Absolutely. None of it is in there. None of it is in there. Okay. What we're going to find in her story, and if you look just below this, when the battle is won, the description of the victory borrows its terminology. Well, you tell me, where have we seen these words before? Vayahom, Merkava, chariots fleeing, Um, not one remained. Lo nish'ar ad echad. And then in victory, Ashira, I will sing. All of that comes from the most bombastic, illustrious victory that the Bible has to offer. The salvation at the sea, after the splitting of the sea. Basically what this text is doing by borrowing that language and transposing it, transplanting a female into, that, into, the, into the role of Moses, right? Is saying this is possible. A woman can fill that role too. She is Moses in this story, right? So everything, is, everything that we thought we knew is, is turned upside down, and then we meet Yael in Judges 4. And here, finally, we say, oh, we recognize this woman because she's in a tent. But <laughs> what, we all know what she's going to do there, right? The enemy general comes running to the tent, and he says to her, in language that is used for biblical women, can I have a little water, dear? Who has, who said that before? Give me a little water. The servant said it to Rebecca, now he says it to her. But she is no ordinary biblical woman. Instead of giving him water, what does she give him? Milk and blankets and a Brahms lullaby and she puts him to sleep, okay? She is, and here, the subversive elements here where she's using her tent for everything other than fulfilling the the expected woman's role, she's using milk, right? Right, Milk is what you give babies, and what is she doing? She's doing it so that she can kill him, (laughs) right? And then she takes the tent pin, and folks, do not overlook the symbolic value of this. <laughs> what happens when you pull the tent pin out of the tent? No. Down comes the tent. Okay, our whole, our whole structure here. We're talking about a, a, a tent-structured society in, chapter, in, in Genesis. And here he, we have a woman who says, oh, you know, what, what would happen if I pulled this out? Oh, sorry, there goes the tent. Everything is overturned. Right? Then Barak, after everything's been taken care of, this poor general has got this, this sharp object in his, in his temple, um, and Barak <laughs> comes running up, and he says, OK, I'm here, right? Um, and she says to him, <laughs> Go, and I will show you the man you're looking for. Whose, whose words are those? Those words are used only one other place in the Bible. We saw them at the beginning of our talk today. God says to Abraham, <laughs> Here we have a story where women don't only receive the word of God and don't only take over all the male roles. They are speaking in the voice of God. right? And now, at the end of this, when Deborah gives her song of triumph in, in, in Judges chapter 5, she, she picks up on these themes and, and crows about them. Bime anat bime ya'el, chadlu arachot. Sound familiar, anyone? Sarah. I told you to remember this, OK? I, I hope you didn't get distracted. chadal, orach, those words appear twice in all the Bible. Paths ceased in the story of Sarah these words are used to describe the hopeless blocking off of, of all available paths and here Deborah is singing out which i think on the surface this is a song that is that is uh, extolling the greatness of the jewish people but on the, very close to the surface i call this ode to women basically what she's saying is when paths are blocked arachot There are roundabout paths. There are circuitous paths. There are alternative paths. And this story is a story of alternative paths, where women are developing themselves, are, are excelling in every possible way, and then other than motherhood, because neither one of them is described as a mother. But then Devorah, and here, getting back to our technical term chutzpah, what does she say? Devorah shakanti. M be Israel? I arose a mother in Israel. What kind of mother? There are no children in her story. How could she be a mother? What does she mean here? She's saying there are other definitions of mothers. A mother is somebody who, who judges, who prophesies, who leads their people into battle. A mother can be Yael who uses milk not to nurture but to kill a general so that she can save her people. A mother is everything. This is a radical redefinition of motherhood. And in case you still didn't get the point, <laughs> she says, <laughs> Tivorach minashim ya'el eshet hakeni. Blessed be ya'el minashim ba'ohel tivorach. More blessed than the women in the tents. Okay, yes, those women are very blessed, but my women in this book, they're even more blessed. Okay, shocking from beginning to end. Um, the question here is, what what's going on? What what is what are these subversions all about? Can I have another four minutes, please? Yeah, yeah, okay, oh, sure. thank you. Five? five? Did you five. say five? Oh <gasps> <gasps> I'm going to use one of them for breathing. Okay. <laughs> okay. What is what are these what are these what are these subversions trying to say? And I and and I think it, there's something a little unsettling about this. <laughs> It seems like it's a kind of zero-sum game going on here, right? Either the women are up and the men are down, or the men are up mm-hmm. and the women are down. What, what are we looking at here? Um, and I would say, this book, that although it seems to kind of take no hostages, um, it's women at the expense of men, tradition, motherhood, right, throw it all out the window. Um, I, would, I would suggest the following, and I'm very proud of this formulation. I would say that this book is interested not in parity, but in parody. it's it's picking up those stories and and kind of giving a satirical twist to them, and, and at the same time presenting us with a kind of pendulum that says, okay, the book of Genesis had our pendulum here. Let's take the pendulum to its opposite extreme and show the reader that both extremes are possible, but where are we really aiming? We're aiming somewhere in the middle, right? We're overreaching in order to get to something that's more balanced. But before we do that, we have to, we have to shake up our assumptions, our cliches and our expectations, and show that everything and its opposite are p- possible. And here, in my last four minutes, I want to take I want to look at the final text, which is what happens to the, to the infertility story when it is put into the hands of the subversive book of judges? And here, We have a a story of the parents of Shimshon, of Samson. Um, And we see already that we are in an alternative space. Okay, The angel that was always appearing to the patriarchs now appears directly to the woman and says to her, you are childless. You're going to have a child. Where's the man in this story? We all know how this story is supposed to play out. The angel goes to the man. The man either does or does not tell his wife. And she is completely dependent on the man to do the work for her. Here, the, the angel bypasses all of that and it goes directly to her. She goes running to her husband, very dutifully. He immediately pleads to God, Va ye et tar, whose plea, pleading word is that? That's the prayer word that was used for Isaac. it's not an, the most usual word. He is doing what patriarchs do. He, said, I, he says, I know how this story plays out. I'm supposed to get the word. I'll pray. And so he prays and he says to God, please, that that messenger that you sent, can you send him again and tell us what to do? And here in the next the, the, the second line, the the end of the line, Va Elohim Bekol God listen to Manoach. Va'yavo Malacha Elohim Od and the angel came again, El Haisha. Back to the woman. And in case you thought that it would be okay and they'd both be there, She's sitting in the field. Whose space is that? That's Isaac's space. That's the patriarchal space. She has co-opted it. And in case you thought he was with her, it tells us, no, don't worry. He's nowhere near there. He's not in the vicinity. Okay, so here she's basically, the woman here is co-opting the man's role, the man's space. This infertility story has been completely turned upside down. Okay, Um, what are we doing here? Basically, toward conclusion, I just want to say these stories are here to warn us. Do not get caught up in simplistic, circumscribed definitions and prescriptions about biblical women on the basis of a story of a biblical woman, or even a whole book and its presentation on biblical women, such as the book, such as we saw in, in the book of Genesis. Right? And Akedat Yitzhak, in that amazing section that we saw, he mentions two different names of woman in the Garden of Eden. He says she's called Isha and she's called Chava. But I want to just end by saying there was actually a third name of woman. Anybody know what it was in the original statement? The very first name that woman is given? Ha adam the first time woman is created god creates ha adam male and female with 100 percent equal opportunity to, to both god says be fruitful multiply conquer the earth go out and do everything that human beings do right and i think that we can't miss the significance of that 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 is the first time that that woman is created and here what i would say is as we expand Our scope of biblical women, what we basically see is that that potential is there throughout. Um, For both women and men, all options are open in leading a meaningful life, in leaving an enduring legacy with or without children, inside or outside of the tent. Shabbat Shalom.